We are continuing our study on the life of Moses. That has been our subject and will be our subject for the entire course of the spring semester. As you uh, may know well, Moses is one of the most prominent figures in the Bible. Uh, he's one of the few people whose story we get in the Bible from beginning to end. That is, from uh, Moses' birth all the way until his moment of death. One of the things we learn is that although Moses is not naturally gifted for the task that he's called to sort of perform, he has a very special place in the story of God's salvation, that God appoints Moses as a mediator, as the go-between who will lead God's people out of Egyptian bondage and into the freedom of learning how to serve him. And last week, if you were with us, we saw that climactic deliverance in one of the more famous scenes in Moses' life, perhaps the most famous, alongside the burning bush. That was the Red Sea crossing. Pharaoh and his army went into the waters, into the sea, after the Israelites, and they were uh, swallowed by the waters of God's judgment. And in that moment, if you remember, we made the point that the sentence of death against Israel, in that very moment, had been canceled. In that very moment, when God uh, brought the waters down upon Pharaoh's army, Israel possessed by a decisive act of God, through the mediation of Moses, they possessed a new status as free people. And so now, Israel is objectively free from slavery. Israel is no longer under the dominion or the power of a foreign army. And the question becomes, well, how are they going to do with that? How is that going to work out for them? How will they fare in their newfound freedom? That's what we're going to find out more about this morning. And I think as you'll see, you'll notice that just because Israel is objectively free, just because the sentence of death has been canceled against them, they've been given a new verdict, it does not mean that Israel really knows well how to live as a free people. There is some learning that has to take place. There's formation that has to take place. There's training that needs to happen in the life of the community. Um, I have uh, four kids. I feel like it's uh, pretty much a foregone conclusion that you hear about one of them almost every week, okay? So when my second son, Charlie, was three, he fell off the monkey bars here at church, and he broke his leg. Any good attorneys uh, in in the audience this morning? I should be driving a Lexus right now, but I'm not. I'm driving a pilot. I told Charlie he took one for the team, but I, you know, I haven't produced yet. So, Anyway, Charlie broke his fibula in the fall. And in order to heal his leg, uh, the doctor set it in a cast for six weeks at a 45-degree angle, which meant you know, basically he couldn't walk at all for six weeks. Very active three-and-a-half-year-old. And so for him, that was, especially at the beginning, it was its own form of slavery. So in order to cope, Charlie learned how to scoot. He would just scoot, and then he would also use his arms to drag uh, his body around the house, and eventually Charlie learned to pull himself up on one leg, and he got very proficient at hopping around on one good leg. Uh, He learned how to cope pretty well uh, on one good leg for six weeks, and then the day finally arrived. We brought him to the doctor, and the doctor looked at his leg, and the doctor cut the cast off, and the doctor made a proclamation that his leg had healed just as it was supposed to, it was uh, essentially as strong as ever. Charlie could now walk. Charlie could now run. He could jump. He could do everything that he had always done before. 
And yet we got home that day and Charlie refused to walk on it. For days, really, the cast was off for an entire week, even though his leg was strong enough. He would not walk on his leg. He continued to scoot and to hop and to drag his body around as if he only had one good leg still, though he had two. Why? Because Charlie had to learn how to actually live once again without the constraint of a cast. He had to train himself how to be free. He had to be trained once again to live in the Dockler's true declaration of his freedom. When we get to uh, hear Exodus 18, past really chapter 14, what we find is that the cast has come off for Israel. The cast has come off. Uh, Their restraint has been lifted. But now Israel has much learning to do. There is much training that needs to happen with them. They have to learn how to live in God's declaration of freedom. And the same is true for us this morning. If you're a Christian here with us this morning, then for you, God says, Paul says this very clearly in Romans 8, we looked at it last semester, for you, the cast really has come off. God has declared you as free. But you still need to be trained in how to walk freely. You need training, you need, we'll call it discipleship. (laughs) Uh, You need a formation in how to live in your freedom as free men. I'm going to read a passage this morning that on the surface seems like a passage about organizational restructuring. So probably just what you wanted to hear this morning right before you go to work, right? Like uh, org charts and delegation and management. And there is certainly here before us this morning some wise stuff about administration, but this passage is fundamentally and centrally about discipleship. The passage before you this morning is fundamentally about learning to walk in the freedom that God has won for us in terms of uh, serving Him and loving one another. We're going to read it together now. I'm going to skip around a little bit. I think you have it all there on your uh, handout before you. Exodus chapter 18, verses 8 through 9. Then I'm going to skip down and read verses 13 through 27. This is God's word to us this morning. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. The next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to inquire, the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make known to them the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws. 
and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, men who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people in all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. And so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law, and he did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all of Israel and made them heads over the people. He made them chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for uh, your word to us this morning. We pray that you would teach us by your spirit what it means to know you, what it means to serve you, what it means to be called a son of God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just for some context, if you have been with us at all, then you may remember the name Jethro. Okay, uh, Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. Jethro is a Gentile. More specifically, Jethro is a Midianite. He is not an Israelite, and therefore Jethro was not with the people of Israel when they made their great escape from Egypt, when they went through the Red Sea. But I want you to notice uh, early on that Jethro does receive the benefits of Israel's escape. We see it in this passage. He receives the benefits of Israel's escape because Jethro comes to them and he believes the story for himself. Why do I point that out to you? Well, this is, this is extremely important, especially if you think the Old Testament is essentially only about the ethnic people of Israel. Okay? Israel, God tells us in Genesis 12 with Abraham, Israel was blessed by God in order for them to be a blessing to the nations, to all the nations. And here we see a Midianite. I mean, Midianites are not looked upon favorably, especially later in the Bible. We see a Midianite rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in Yahweh because of what uh, Israel has done, because of the blessing that God has showed Israel. What I want you to see early on is that the nations are always in view of what God is doing, even when the camera lens focuses on especially one nation, Israel. But even more than just receiving the joy of Israel's salvation, I want you to notice this. Jethro himself, as a Midianite, is appointed by God, as a Midianite, as a Gentile, to give to Moses, the leader of Israel, the prophet of Israel, a message. A Midianite is giving the prophet Moses a message. It's ironic. Here is the Hebrew prophet heeding the words of a Midianite. And what are those words? Look at me at verses 17 through 18 here. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing that you are doing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. So the message that Jethro has been appointed to give Moses is this. Moses is now carrying a burden that is too heavy for him. Moses has overextended himself. 
And I want you to see that even though Moses is doing really good things, right? Like he's doing good things and Jethro says, but what you're doing is not good. It is emphatically not good. It is not good for you to carry a burden even in ministry, Moses. Even in service to God and service to others that is beyond your capacity. It is not good for you to carry a burden that is beyond your calling to carry, that is not yours alone to carry. Jethro looks at Moses as Moses is wearing himself out in ministry day and night, and he says this, God is not pleased. God is not pleased. He does not approve of what you're doing. Perhaps that is telling for us. Men, God does not call us to carry burdens that are beyond our capacity to carry. God does not call us to wear ourselves out, even if it's in good things, in service to other people, if it means that we become shells of ourselves. If it means that we become useless to our families, our colleagues, our friends, our churches, God does not call us to overextend ourselves, to wear ourselves out, so that we're shells of ourselves. He calls us to be joyful people, which means inhabiting and carrying the burden that he has given us to carry, and not more than that. There are three things I want you to see this morning from this passage to watch out for as the scene unfolds. We'll do it by means of questions. Here are the three questions I want us to look at this morning. First of all, what is the burden that Moses is actually carrying? What is the burden that Moses is carrying alone? What is the nature of the burden? Number two, if Moses shouldn't carry it alone, who should carry it? Who should carry the burden? If it's not supposed to be carried just by Moses, who should carry it? And then finally, towards what end? What is the goal? What is the finish line? Uh, Towards what end should the burden be carried? Let's look at those three in turn now. First of all, what is the burden? We learn about the burden in verses 13 through 15. Look there with me. The burden is this. The whole community is coming to Moses in order to know the will of God for their lives. So the whole community is going to Moses in order for Moses to tell them the will of God for their lives. They want to know God's will for specific situations, especially in all the variety of conflicts and uh, um, situations that they find themselves. Is that a good thing or a bad thing, do you think? It's a really good thing, right? I mean, the the community has sort of really great intentions. Israel is learning here how to walk in obedience to God. And what Moses is doing is he is mediating that process for them. And what's clear at this point in the story is that Israel knows enough in general. They know enough in general about God's rules and regulations, about his laws, to have a general understanding of what it might mean to live before him. They know enough in general about how to obey him generally. And this is before the law gets codified two chapters later uh, at Mount Sinai. So even before the law becomes written in a book, the book of the law Israel has a general understanding of obedience. But listen to me. (laughs) This is important. They do not yet know how to apply God's rule, his gracious and loving rule in their everyday lives. They generally know it, but they have no idea how to apply it. For example, they may know at this point that God is a God who commands love, who commands justice, who commands generosity. But they don't yet know how those rules play out, for example, when a man has a donkey. And that donkey wanders upon and falls in the pit of another man who left his pit uncovered. Well, which feature of God do you apply there? Right? Who owes whom? Uh, Should should one man just forgive? Should the other man make restitution? Should they arm wrestle? 
Should they flip a coin? Moses, tell us what we should do. Let me give you a more sort of a relevant example of the same burden. Consider what Jesus tells us. A rule, a law, um, a regulation regarding retaliation in Matthew 5, in one of his most, his most famous sermon, the Sermon of the Mount. Consider his words. He says this, You have heard it said, men, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Okay. And if anyone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other to him as well. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Look, I realize this. You can memorize that all day long. You probably have heard that before. You can, ex- you can extrapolate from that principles about the will of God. But how does that law play out, for example, when you are called to cast a vote that may send your country into war? How does it play out then? How does that law play out in a relationship that you become involved with between an abuser and a victim when both continue to see each other because they reside in the same family? How does that law play out as you teach your kids about what it means to stand up to a bully at school? Do you see the burden? Do you feel the burden that Moses feels? If you are a Christian, I know that you feel it. It is this. How do I actually live out the law of God, the will of God, and the stuff of my everyday life, and all the variety of conflicts and situations and decisions that confront me? See, in a word, the burden that Moses feels is discipleship. It is discipleship. Moses feels the burden of the discipleship of God's people. Applying the rule of God, the ways of God to all of life. Learning and doing the will of God in every situation, in all the variety of conflicts and situations that you will leave here and find yourself face to face with as you move out into the world. It is the word discipleship. What I want you to see this morning from the passage is that the real frailty here is not with Moses. Moses is a man. He's doing a lot of good things. The real frailty here is with the people. Israel is in the infancy, the very beginning stages of learning how to live out the rule of God in her life. And listen to me. Somewhere in that very space, somewhere in the space of learning and doing the will of God for you, you are living this morning if you are a Christian. We are all in process as disciples. We are all still in the process of learning how to walk faithfully without a cast. To apply the will of God in all the variety of conflicts and situations that we face. And listen, certainly it is true. Certainly it is true that some are further along than others. But none of us in the journey is finished. Even Moses in the passage, it wasn't over for Moses. Look Moses needs a Gentile Midianite to apply God's word to his own practice as a prophet of God's word. So just like Moses, just like Israel, we are all still training. We're in training. Uh, we, We are all still striving, still learning what it means to live as disciples in all of life. To apply the rule of God, the ways of God, to all of our life. That's the burden. That's the burden. The second question is this. Well, who should carry that burden? Right? Okay, so if if that's true for all of us, who should carry that burden for you in your life? Who should carry the burden of our discipleship? Well, the answer is fairly simple in the passage, but I think it needs to be said so that we don't miss it. And we need to talk about how it sort of comes to expression. 
According to the passage, the burden of discipleship among the people of God is to be carried by the entire community. Let me say it again. According to the passage, the burden of discipleship for the people of God is supposed to be carried by the entire community. The entire community is supposed to be engaged in the process of making disciples of one another. Another way to say it is this. Discipleship happens in the church. It happens in the church, in the context of the entire people of God. We see it in the story. Look, one person, the story teaches us, is not enough, even if it's Moses himself. Well, think about who Moses is at this point. Moses is essentially a full-time minister. He is the only mediator. I mean, Moses is, uh, uh, is, and he's been pretty successful, wouldn't you say? Fairly successful up to this point. Best preacher Israel's ever seen. He has a staff. Uh, I mean, not like, a, like people on staff, but like he has like a literal staff. And when he holds it up, like awesome things happen. So if anyone uh, can carry the burden, wouldn't it be Moses? And what does Jethro say? He says, Moses, what you're doing isn't good. It's not good for you to carry it. Go find other men of character, he says. Listen, from all the people. Go find men of character from all the people. Let them oversee the process. Jethro is introducing here a level of structure into the community, but more important than the numbers is the principle. Israel needs an entire community in order to become who she is called to be. This is a plea, men, for the church. It is a plea for the church. Where you sit this morning, you need the church for your discipleship, to know what it means to work out the will of God in your life. I have a friend um, who's a pastor in Washington, D.C. His name is Glenn Hoberg. A very gifted pastor, and he wrote a little piece on discipleship for his church. And I just want to read you a, a, a part of it. Um, in answer to the question, he's answering the question, how does discipleship occur? In other words, how do we know the will of God? How do we know and live the will of God? He writes this. Discipleship, he writes, takes place with multiple persons. For those who have grown up in the church, or who have been Christians for some time, there may be certain models that come to mind when you hear the word discipleship. Discipleship, for some, may mean one person, like a primary discipler or a primary mentor. Discipleship, for others, might mean a program, a book, or a curriculum. Or for some, it just may mean spending time with other people. He writes this, then, all of these are legitimate models, and yet none in and of itself is sufficient. If discipleship, even as we see in this passage, if discipleship entails becoming a whole life worshiper, it needs to take place with multiple persons in your life. Then he says this, the person who serves as a discipler for your marriage may not be the best one for your vocation. The person who is able to bring you along theologically may not be the person uh, to show you God through the arts. This releases the one being discipled from looking to one person for everything, and requires us as people to learn from everybody. It also frees the disciple, Lur, from the guilt of trying to be everything to everyone, as well as from an unhealthy desire for influence. Then he says this, no one, pastors, elders, lay leaders, can be expected to be the one. No one can be expected to be the one. We look for God to use many people in our lives, understanding that Jesus, by the way of the Holy Spirit, is the primary one who changes us and makes us into disciples. What is Glenn saying? Basically this. It was a long, 
reading to tell you this. You need a community. And I'm going to make a shameless plea for Tuesday mornings here. <laughs> I'm not above that. You need what happens here every Tuesday morning. And if you don't have this Tuesday morning, that you need something like that. You need to sit with other men who have different perspectives than you do. You need to sit at a table with other men from different generations. You need to get to know men with different gifts and experiences. And you need to hear how the will of God is being worked out in their lives in order for you to know how it might be worked out in your life. One of the marks of a healthy church is that the burden of discipleship, the burden of us together learning to walk in obedience to God in all of life, is not being carried by just the clergy, by the professionals, by a charismatic leader, by a few gatekeepers at the top of the organizational pyramid. But discipleship is being carried by the entire community of God's people. The entire community. You, where you sit this morning, feels responsible for one another. The entire community feels responsible to help one another to know and to live out the word of God in every area of life. The burden that Moses feels is discipleship. The, the one that is called, or the people that are called to carry that burden is the whole community of God's people. And finally, I want you to see this morning, towards what end? What is the end? What is the final goal? What is the finish line? Look at me at verse 23. Jethro says this. He says, Moses, if you do this, then God will be with you. God will direct you. God's at work. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure... And all this people also will go to their place in peace. So on the one hand, the finish line is like Moses, like living, right? It's his own sanity, spiritual, like he's not going to die of stress and heart disease. Moses will, you know, he'll be able to endure. He won't burn out. But more importantly, the goal, Jethro says, is that the people will go to their place in peace. Now, the, the place was the land of Canaan. It was... It was God's promised land. It was all that they had visioned their life being. Finally, their own place. They'll be able to go to that place, and the word, uh, the Bible says, in peace. Now, it gets translated peace there because it's translated peace in a lot of places in Scripture, but the Hebrew word there is the word shalom. Maybe you've heard that word before. So that the people will be able to go to their place in shalom. When the Bible talks about shalom, when it uses the word shalom, it's not just talking about peace in the sense that we often think of peace which is the absence of conflict. Like you think things are at peace when there's no conflict. But when the Bible talks about shalom, it talks about it in a positive sense. Not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of total renewal. Shalom is a complete flourishing. It is everything existing as it was meant to be. And Jethro says, that's the goal, people. The goal is that the people, that you and me, will get to our place to flourish. That's the finish line. That's why we help one another to live and to know the word of God together. It is for shalom. Now, the prophets talk about shalom a lot. And years later, the prophet Jeremiah describes the shalom of God's people in this way. Listen to it and see if you hear the connection with our passage this morning. He says this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. That is moving towards the finish line. Here's what the finish line will look like. Here's what the covenant will look like. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. I will put my law in them. 
and I will write it on their hearts. Do you hear the connection with our passage this morning? The goal towards which Israel is moving. You see, right now in Exodus 18, where is the law? Where's the law? The law is outside of Israel. It's external. They are just learning it. They're just becoming familiar with it. They are struggling in their lives to apply it. And soon the law will even be more helpful. It'll get codified in a book. The Ten Commandments. And they'll know it even more as they struggle to live it out in their lives. And that's important. (laughs) That is a process of discipleship. But the goal is much more than that, says Jeremiah. The goal is not just for Israel to learn the law and to apply it as servants. The goal is for Israel to internalize the law, to delight in the law as sons. That is to say, the goal is for the law, which is an expression of the very heart of God. The goal is for the law, for God's heart to become their own. The goal is for the heart of God to become the thing that beats inside the people of God. Let me try to illustrate it like this. I told you when Charlie first got his cast off, he refused to walk on his own. He just didn't want to do it. And so I had to prod him. I had to remind him, and it sounds silly, but I had to actually tell him to walk. Son, stop scooting. Stop hopping on one leg. Walk. Straighten your leg. Practice walking. Stop hopping. Stop dragging. Walk. Walk to me. Run. And Charlie would do it because I commanded it, and that was enough. But my command at that moment crossed his instincts. When I told him to walk, it crossed his will, it crossed his own heart. Until about a weekend, and then Charlie began to walk on his own. He began to live out the command without my voice because he wanted to walk. Do you see that? He wanted to do it. He no longer needed me prodding him and reminding him and directing him because walking became an expression of his own heart. He felt the joy. He felt the pleasure. He felt the rightness. He felt the correspondence in walking for himself. That's the finish line. That's what God wants in his people. He is writing the law on our hearts. Why? So that one day the law will no longer cross your will. One day the law will no longer cross your instincts. It will no longer seem foreign to you. It will no longer cut across your heart. Instead, the place of peace, the place of flourishing, will be the place of harmony in your heart with the very heart of God. I mean, let me tell you this morning, if you don't keep that in view, if you don't keep that finish line in view, then the law of God will feel to you like a new kind of slavery. And God himself will never feel like a father to you. He will feel like a new kind of master instead. If you don't remember that God himself gave his son to make you into a son. If you don't keep in view that God gave what was at the center of his heart so that he might become the one at the center of your heart. If you don't remember that the end goal is not merely doing a lot of stuff for him, but ultimately flourishing with him, then discipleship will feel to you like a burden that is too great for you to bear no matter what community you find yourself in. You can hop from church to church and it will never feel right. It will never feel right. Discipleship will always feel like a burden. I love what Sinclair Ferguson said when he describes what God does for us in writing the law onto our hearts as sons. He says this, 
when Jesus stands before the Father as our older brother, and he presents us to God as sons, the Father will say, I would have known them anywhere. They look just like you. When Jesus stands before the Father as our older brother and presents us to God as sons, the Father will say, I would have known them anywhere. They look just like you. Men, that is discipleship. It is the purpose of the law in your life as a Christian to make you look like Jesus, to make your very heart beat with the heart of Jesus, to make your affections an expression of the compassion and the reality that you find in his heart. And listen to me, by his grace, God is at work in your little tables this morning. In communities like this on Tuesday mornings, communities struggling to know and to live the word of God to make this happen for your flourishing. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning to us. We thank you for men like Jethro who had courage to speak into Moses' life. We pray, God, that we would listen to others. Certainly Moses had a position far above Jethro's, and yet Jethro commanded Moses, this Midianite uh, priest, a Gentile, to listen to him. And we pray, Father, that as we speak to one another, as men around our tables, as we strive to carry the burden of discipleship together, that you would cause us to listen, to take heed. Father, we pray that you would give us uh, a vision of the finish line, that you are for us, not against us, that ultimately you want our hearts to beat as yours. Father, that you would help us, even in the infancy of our discipleship, to work out what it means to obey you, to listen to you, to walk with you, in all the conflicts and situations that we find ourselves in today. We pray that you would do this because uh, you're gracious, not because we got up early this morning, but because you love us. In Christ's name, amen.